Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. Uh, before we really kick into today's episode, I thought it might be good to do a little explanation. We recently did a uh, Brew Your Own magazine online chat. We write a column for Brew Your Own, and every once in a while they have us and some of their other authors on to uh, do a chat session online, a Q&A, where uh, if you're one of the digital subscribers to Brew Your Own, you can get on there and ask us questions. So that's what people did, and uh, as you'll hear, we had some interesting answers. Uh, and I guess I should say right now, uh, I kind of went over the top on the first one, so just take that with a grain of salt and relax. Uh, I, I did later. So anyway, please listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible, and we'll be right back with our BYO chat. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Here we are. This is the uh, September BYO live video chat. Um, with us, we you have the, drink beer day, everybody. The, we have the Brew Your Own Techniques authors, uh, Drew Beecham and Denny Kahn with us. Uh, you also know them from their Experimental Brewing podcast, their numerous books on homebrewing that they've written um, and cider making. Um, and probably from HomebrewCon and any other homebrew-related events you've gone to since they're Bit of celebrities, uh, and now have been for quite some time. Real quick, before we jump to the questions, uh, and I know Drew has typed this a couple times in the chat there, but, uh, that chat is kind of just to talk amongst yourselves, let us know where you're tuning in from and anything like that. The questions, you see a little question mark with the, uh, question, uh, like speech bubble there on the right. It looks like we have four questions in now. That's where you can ask questions for Denny and Drew. Um, and these are recorded. If anyone has to duck out of here early, you can always come back and check the replay or submit your question if you have to leave and come back and hear the answer later. Um, with that, I'm just going to kick it over to you guys for a minute. Uh, what's what's new with you guys? Uh, working on any big projects? I know you guys brewed a special beer at Home Brew Con. Uh, 
Okay, the floor is yours for a couple minutes. What uh, what do you want to talk about before we get to questions? Uh, whoever invented Theraflu deserves a raise. <laughs> and I made 13 pounds of eggplant parm yesterday. There we go. Uh, is that yeah, homegrown uh, eggplant, Donnie? Well, yeah, of course. Wrapping up, wrapping up the season. Homegrown eggplant, basil, tomato sauce. Uh, oh, geez, most of it actually. See, this is one of the nice things about Southern California. I still got tomatoes coming in on the plants. So, well, so do, so do we. <laughs> We've hardly yeah. harvested any yet. But uh, anyway, this is not gardening talk. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> And now I'm seeing a bunch of questions coming in, so we'll get to them. But you guys, uh, everyone tuning in, keep on submitting questions. We've got an hour here. So uh start this off with Stephen Wade asks, really enjoy the podcast and books. I was listening to Brad Smith's podcast, and one of his recent guests said the IBU equations measure the level before fermentation. Brad seems surprised by this. Do you have any experience with this and any suggestions for hitting your IBU target post-ferment? Don't worry yeah, about don't, it. Don't listen to whoever said that, uh, that it's only good for prefer or whatever. Uh, no wonder Brad was surprised because that's ridiculous. Well, I think I think it's important. Let's get a little bit into the history of it, right? So the we've we've done some research about this and talked about it before, but that famous formula that we all use, the the Tenzith formula, uh, there's an actual Tenzith uh, behind all of it. Uh, and Glenn Tenseth was a home brewer in Northern California. And Denny, remind me, this was in the early 90s he was doing this? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Although, you know, well, yeah, go go ahead. But this doesn't have anything to do with the question. No, but it, uh, well, no. <laughs> yeah, to do with it. So the the IBU calculations that we that we mostly use, is, it's a, a variation of the Tenseth formula, uh, which is really just a, a really messy regression equation designed to fit a bunch of data that Glenn Tenseth had, had uh, collected over time on his home brewery in his backyard using whole hops. Um, yeah. In, in a converted keg kettle over a propane burner. Yeah. And yeah. So basically he said that unless you brew exactly like he brews and take the same amount of time chilling, there is no reason to think that his formula will have anything to do with what you're going to get. Um, yeah. And and we we kind of proved that we did an experiment uh, on experimental brewing where we had a bunch of people. We as a matter of fact we we had them all brew the same recipe. We got hops uh, donated from Yakima Chief, and we had them analyzed before they were sent out, so that we knew exactly what the alpha acids in them were. And uh, you know everybody used them the same way, and you know, the, the recipe was the same. There was a variation of plus and minus fifty percent in the IBUs of the finished beers. Now got, back to the, the higher up you went. Yeah, right. Um, back to the original question. I have had beers that I have calculated the IBUs for, analyzed post fermentation, and they came out to be just what the software said that they were going to be IBU-wise. So, uh, you know, IBU equations measure the level before fermentation, maybe, but they, if they do, then that also applies post-fermentation, in, in my experience. Yeah, and I mean, it is true that I mean, the, the bitterness levels will change after ferment, uh, fermentation, right? You, know, you get 
different compounds taken up by yeast, different things drop out. But really when we're talking about IBUs, it just says that measure of, of isomerized alpha acid. Uh, that's pretty, that, that's pretty fixed into that equation. Now yeah, I will also say that the, the reason why we're both kind of like the IBU is a lie in part because of that experiment. It's also because I mean, look, everybody wants to obsess, you know, about I've got to hit my numbers. You know, my, my numbers are, are God. Um, you can't tell the difference between 10 different IBUs in a, in a beer, you know, no matter, no matter what you do. So as long as you're in the ballpark and what that ballpark is, is really going to depend upon your taste. Uh, I think Danny, you usually recommend using Sierra Nevada as your base point, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, Sierra Nevada is in a uh, pale ale is an amazingly consistent beer and you know that it's 35 IBUs. And so that's what I use to calibrate my palate to that's what 35 IBUs should taste like. Going back to the original question, the more I think about it, the more absurd it is. Who cares what the IBUs are pre-ferment, right? You're not going to be drinking that beer. It has it has no bearing on anything. So I don't know who said that, but I will say that they were dead wrong. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next question from uh, Eric Hutz. What what type of water profile do you use brewing saisons? Depends upon, yeah, depends upon what you want. Uh, Saison as a, as a, uh, style is somewhat, uh, wibbly and wobbly and sort of everywhere that you want to be. Um, if I am looking to make something that is, you know, sort of yield dry, crisp, sort of classical Saison, so like say a DuPont, um, I will go for something that is more, um, more sulfate forward. You know, it, generally a lot of that water over a Malunia is pretty hard. Uh, it's pretty mineral laden, uh, but I will I will generally go for a beer that edges more sulfate over anything else, just because I really want to emphasize the dry character of a saison. I think if you have a saison that doesn't read dry, you've done something wrong. So almost always for me, I go sulfate forward on on saisons. Now, also having said that, a lot of times here in LA, my my local water that I get out of uh, well, what mine's a mix of MWD water, aka the California Aqueduct and Colorado River. And Sunny Slope, a couple miles south of me, uh, that water tends to be pretty good and uh, not neutral, but uh, fairly more sulfate forward, but uh, not aggressively so. And so a lot of times I just use that. Now, if I'm going for, like, say, a darker Saison, I make a, a Saison Brune or, or like a Christmas Saison, I might add a little, I might pull that carbon or not carbon, the sulfate level back a little bit. Uh, but in general, no. Uh, in general, I'm pretty straightforward on this. I, I prefer a slightly more sulfate-laden water over a uh, chloride-laden water. Or, uh, you know, just, again, because to my mind with the Saison, what you're trying to emphasize is that dryness. And sulfate helps drive, uh, helps drive that impression of dryness. So. Yeah, um, you often hear people say sulfate uh, will inc- uh, accentuate the hoppiness in a beer, but that's not really the case. As Drew said, and Martin Brungard has pointed out many times, what it really does is accentuate the dry finish of a beer. So, uh, yeah, I think Drew's water profile for Cezanne uh, is exactly what I want to have in a Cezanne. Now, by the way, that's not to say that you can't go over to Belgium, for instance, and find saisons that use oh sure uh, use different uh, different sorts of water. A uh, big one that jumps out to my mind 
uh, would be uh, Saison Pipe from Brasserie Vapour. And that one's actually you know, still mineral latent, but it's not as uh, sulfating. And in the bad old days, back when they still used mild steel tanks uh, to do their fermentation, it also had a fair amount of iron in it. Uh, which I will say out of the many, many things about water in this world, you know, one of the universal rules is remove your chlorine and chloramine. The other universal rule that should go without saying is don't use water with iron in it unless you like drinking blood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every, uh, there's, there's another classic, uh, uh, Belgian brewery, uh, Sine, uh, C-I-N-E-Y and all of their beers. And I haven't had them in probably two decades, but, uh, two decades ago, all their beers that I had all tasted like, I bit my tongue because they were so iron forward. Uh, and I don't, I don't really like that flavor. Turns out. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, neutral to sulfate laden. Uh, but you, in general, you can get away with a lot. Uh, but again, I like sulfate more because I like the drier, the drier feel. Okay. See, this next question is about, uh, vigorous, First, uh, kind of rolling boils. Uh, I've found to overshoot calculated IBUs, or I need to overshoot calculated IBUs to get the desired sensory level. Could this be because I brew on a 120 volt electric system and the boil isn't a vigorous rolling boil? Similarly, I get the malt character I want, or to get the malt character I want, I found that I need to add a touch of Vienna to my American and German pale lagers and use Bach yeast. Um, could this all be related to the Vigor of the boil? Uh, I've found that I need to overshoot calculated IBUs. Why not just calculate them higher is my first question. Um, well, I think that's yeah. why you I think. I think the, what this question is saying is I feel like if I go for 60 IBUs, I don't get the impression that I want for 60 IBUs. So, therefore, I calculate to 70 IBUs to get that 60 IBU target. Yeah, right, sure, and that could be water or any number of other things, too. I don't think it's because your boil isn't vigorous enough. Uh, you know, uh, that uh, it doesn't really – I mean, you know, the, the fact you get IBUs from Whirlpool hops should tell you that the vigor of the boil isn't going to make a whole heck of a lot of difference. Uh, I, I, I just I just don't think that's it. And, Dawson, I can't see the rest of the question, so. Uh, Danny, go click on the, the – Yeah, if you click on the question mark on the right, you'll see the whole thing. But he, but he says the same thing with malt profile. He needs to add Vienna to get the uh, malt profile he's looking for in a Bach yeast. Um, um, yeah, well, that's that's not that's okay. <laughs> you know, it it has it has to do with your own tastes. You know. Oh, did we lose me? I still see you. You're there. Right. Oh, there you are. You're back. Denny? Yeah, yeah. Hello. We, we lost. Oh, great. I, I so see you were starting in on your answer about Vienna and malt. Yeah, I, I would say that it's really no, not, not a surprise that you need to add some new Vienna or that you want to add some Vienna to it, accentuate the malt. I mean, it, it's a personal taste kind of thing. So Perfect. if that works, you know, go for it. So, well, so – Denny, let me rephrase this question. If I have a 120-volt system and you have a 240-volt, we're both using the same system, just different power. Mm -hmm. We brew the same recipe, same everything. Ideally, we have the same results, or will your stronger boil uh, change anything? No. Uh, well, it will change some things, but it won't change anything related to the hops. 
Um, you know, it will it will uh, possibly change the clarity of the beer because the more rolling boil means more proteins coagulate together. Uh, will possibly change the color and flavor of the malt character of the beer. But um, as long as you're getting any kind of boiling motion at all, um, then it's then you're going to be getting the IBUs. Uh, and I say this as somebody who used to brew on a 110-volt Grainfather G30 system. I now brew on a 220-volt Grainfather G70 system. I have not had the beers analyzed, I admit, but to my taste, there is nothing different about the uh, the IBU levels in those beers. And to tell you the truth, on the G70, now I think maybe even on all grandfather systems these days, you can control the power level of the boil. So on my G70, once I get to a boil, I cut the power back so that I'm not boiling so hard, so I can hit my my boil off rates better. So I would say it's you know it's not a huge vigorous rolling boil. It's kind of a smooth boil. Danny's a big fan of smooth rock. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I'll say I mean I, I saw a couple of reactions there about the Maillard reaction. Uh, you got to be careful about when we talk about the Maillard reaction because of the really the temperatures and energy needed uh, for like a true and proper Maillard. Uh, you know, it's a little hard to get that in aqueous solution, uh, but you can, uh, you can a little bit. Um, I'm, so, I'm glad to see the caramelization down there is in quotation marks, because if not, I would jump all over them. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Are, are there going to be differences? Yes. I don't think you're going to, uh, get a, a real strong difference in your hop character, like in terms of the isomerization. It may just be that one, it turns out you prefer a stronger hop character than what the IBUs calculate out to be. Uh, in terms of the malt addition, I mean, look, any brew system that you go out to in the world, any professional brewery, any home brewery, anything else like that, there are adjustments that you have to make in order to actually get to a, uh, you know, to, to do the same recipe and get the same flavors. Um, and that's, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, every system has its own quirks. So if it turns out that for you, the easy solution or the right solution to get the maltiness that you want in a American lager is to add a touch of Vienna, you would be far from the only people out there doing that. In fact, I just had, I just had an American lager last Friday at one of our happy hours that had a touch of Vienna in there from a professional brewery because they wanted to bump that character a little bit. Right. Um, it, it could be that if your boil is low, you may not be getting those Maillard reactions, and that's what you're looking for. But if you can compensate by adding a little Vienna, <laughs> I don't see why you wouldn't want to do that. Yep. Um, and again, this is one of those things where we often talk about don't get hung up on the purity of the idea. Get hung up on the final execution of the idea. Right. Right. So if it turns out that you got to dance naked around your kettle three times counterclockwise in order to get the appropriate hot thing about that, yeah, uh, then uh, then you do that for your equipment. Uh, again, as another example, when Stone years ago moved from their original uh, facility over there in uh, San Marcos to the new fancy facility in in Escondido. Uh, they switched brew systems completely. Like they went from like the old sort of direct fire American craft brew uh, system 
through this big, glorious German offset boiling calandria type uh, type setup. It took Stone with all their commercial interests and everything else uh, six months to really dial those beers back in and start making Stone IPA taste like Stone IPA again. So sometimes you just got to deal with what the equipment's giving you. Good point. We'll be back after these messages. The ultimate all-in-one electric homebrewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grainfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grainfather.com. done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops, it's supporting family farms. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned hop supplier whose mission is to connect hop growers and brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is proud to have an established return-to-grower program which redistributes an average of 75% of their business earnings back to the family farms who grow the hops in your beer. Where you buy your ingredients matters, and with Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. Learn more at yakimachief.com slash return dash growers. question from Josh. Any estimate on how topping off a batch when adding to the fermenter affects IBUs? Um, I know those can be a shaky reading. I top off due to back issues. As long as you take it into account in your recipe, it won't have any effect at all. Well, I mean, it'll have effect from the concentration level of the higher gravity. 
That's true. But, although that has that has been shown to not be as important as we once thought that it was. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to have a much higher gravity for it to really have much of an impact on on your uh, your IBUs. Uh, and we're talking about hop utilization here, right? The the theory being that the higher gravity your wort is, the uh, less the hop utilization will be. The the fewer IBUs you'll be getting out of your hops. And when we started brewing 25 years ago, this was like a really really big deal. Mm-hmm. And while it's still true to some extent. Uh, subsequent research has shown that it's not quite as big a deal as it was. Uh, small amounts of change in boil gravity will not really affect your hop utilization too much. Um, but, but I mean, that does come out of like the professional brewing industry where, I mean, you know, when they're doing like the, the brewing strong to dilute down, you know, yeah, uh, sure. so they can extend their capacity. But I mean, like again, when when Budweiser's doing that, for instance, they're brewing a beer like the Budweiser Chit beer. I think, if I remember correctly, comes in, it comes in an original gravity of like ten sixty or so. And when they when they water it down for packaging, it's more like ten forty, right? Uh, starting gravity. So I mean, they're 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 off by a fairly large margin. At which point in time, you have to adjust the the hopping levels as little hops as they actually use in Budweiser and Bud Light. They still have to. <laughs> Josh, I would say, as with all things hops, as we've discussed earlier, <coughs> let your taste be your guide, right? If you are calculating that beer to be 35 IBUs and you get done with it and it's tipped <coughs> off and you go, man, this just does not taste like 35 IBUs, then add more hops next time because it's your beer. It's your tastes that you're trying to please. So, you know, I don't think it's going to have a huge effect, but again, you know, you don't drink calculations, man. You drink the beer. Okay. That's a universal lesson. And sorry, I keep coughing. I just discovered where the mute button is. Oh, good. <laughs> I was going to say, we bought those fancy mute buttons. Let's see. Next next question from Mike here. Do strike temperatures apl- apply these days when brewing on electric systems, especially 240 volt, that can quickly recover from temperature drops? I feel like there are two reasons they shouldn't apply. One, having a strike temperature was with a gas-controlled system originally. Two, if you peak too high or too low, you could prevent the enzyme activity you were originally shooting for. Well, uh, by strike temperature, I assume you mean like kind of like overheating the water a bit to account for the thermal mass of the grain, cooling it yep. down when you put it in. Um, yep. I do it, <laughs> you know. Uh, I don't see I, – I guess I don't see why you wouldn't if you could. Well, uh, um you know, I'm to saying strike temperature was with a gas-controlled system originally. That's that is not the case. You know, uh, there are lots of commercial breweries using electric systems that uh, go on that same theory. Um, you know, the grandfather software that I use with my G70 has a setting for that. Uh, I've experimented with using it and not using it. Uh, I find that it gets to my mash temp a little bit more quickly if I use it. It doesn't make a huge difference if I don't. So, you know, I don't think that that's going to do it. And if you peak too high for too long, 
man, you gotta, you know, it's, it's gonna take a good 20 minutes that temperatures above say 170 to really start denaturing those enzymes. So under normal circumstances, that is very difficult to happen unless you're just not doing something else right. Yeah. Modern malts have so much enzyme power to them that, uh, yeah, even if you are able to quickly denature enzymes, you've still got a lot left in solution. And I mean, Truthfully, like when I'm brewing on the uh, on my grandfather's, like Denny, uh, I didn't even know they had a, uh, a switch for setting a mash temperature. So uh, I just cheated, and I always added a first mash step that did the traditional like here heat the strike water to 12 degrees above uh, uh, above the where I want my first mash rest to be. Go um, look in the software settings; it's there. I will. But, uh, you know, like I, I literally build my mash schedule so that it's like, here you go, you know, set the water yeah. 10 degrees higher uh, and then allow it to drop. And generally I find I never have a problem with being too high. And particularly when you're doing something like a recirculation system like the grandfathers are, uh, you'll drop temperature pretty rapidly anyway if yeah. you're not actually eating. Yeah, um, like I, I set my, I, I can't remember what the default in the grandfather software is, but I just I just accept that. Uh, you know, I, I mash in, I leave the lid off the grandfather for about three minutes until it comes down and, you know, while I'm recirculating and it comes down and hits my mash temp. Exactly. I put the lid on and go about my brew. What size batches are you talking about here, Danny? Well, with the, with the G70, I can do anything from six gallons to 15 gallons. Uh, but- and it's pretty much the same for all of them. Okay, well, so uh, Meluzine Beer Company here on the chat mentions that the size batches are going to impact how much the grain affects temperature. So I actually brew on the G30, and adding, you know, 12 pounds of grain, I don't find has a significant effect on temperature. No. I guess brewing bigger batches may have more of an impact on temperature, I assume. Well, you know, I I would assume so, but again, the the software that I use takes all that kind of stuff into account. You know, if I'm using less grain, it raises the temp the temperature less. You know, and again, because it's doing it for me, I don't. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I don't pay much attention, man. Uh, Sorry. I'm into I'm in I'm into easy fun brewing these days, not agonizing over the most arcane aspects of it. Uh, I spent. 20 some years doing that and uh, I, I've scienced the shit out of it and come out the other side. But before we get to the next question, because you obviously are known for the easy, yeah, you know, science-based, do you have any experience with no boil brewing? Um, and I'm not talking about the historic or Nordic styles, but modern styles, just skipping the boil. Any experience with it? Nope, I don't. Do I do. Okay. Yeah, I've done a couple of no boil batches. I assume uh, Dawson, you just mean like, yeah, here we're we're going to basically bring it up to a simmer and then drop it and use that temperature to isomerize any alpha acid type hop character. Yeah, I mean, doing the mash, running off, uh, adding basically whirlpool hops, and you know, skipping the hour and twenty minutes that you would dedicate to boil and make a quicker brew day. Yeah, I've never done it where I don't bring the wort up to 194 a short bit of time. Sure, yeah, want, okay. Because I want to kill the lactobacillus. Yeah. Uh, and so I do, I've do. i done that before. 
Uh, I don't tend to do it a lot because, as it turns out, uh, I tend to like the bitterness character that I get out of kettle hops. So, um, if your goal is to make, you know, things that have less bitterness to it or less, you know, or more like a hazy type hop character, then I do think the, the no boil hang is a way, to, is a technique that you can use. Um, I still like to do boil. I, I will also say I did actually do an ancient beer once where it was absolutely no boil. And it was absolutely fascinating. I, I, I spent, uh, I drove out to Palm Springs. I bought a ton of dates, a ton being a technical measure, uh, <laughs> pitted them, turned them into uh, sort of a date paste made uh, a barley and wheat beer or wheat bread from it uh, that the Sumerians would have called papir. Uh, baked that, turned it super hard. It's basically almost like a Sumerian, uh, 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 power bar. You remember those really terrible power bars before? <laughs> it felt like you were trying to chew through, you know, gum, uh, that you had sawdust. That. I get images of Steve Martin. Yeah, exactly. Uh, made bat beer, <clears throat> mashed in, crumbled the bat beer in, spiced it with radishes and coriander and a couple of other things, and then didn't boil it at all. Just basically took the, the mash, filtered it out and put it into the fermenter and let it go. Uh, and, you know, it was perfectly fine. It was drinkable in three days because that was the whole idea of it. Uh, and after about six days, it was complete lactobacillus mess. Uh, so completely undrinkable. So that's part of the reason why I'm always like, no, you can at least put it in summer. Because lactobacillus will come come along with your mash and no, and no problem. Yeah, and I just, you know, because I enjoy the brewing process, um, I, I just have not seen any any point in doing a no-boil beer uh, and a lot of that has to do with the beer that uh, results from it is not the kind of beer that I like to drink. But by the way, I would also like to point out this question was a perfect example of where some uh, where we talk about sometimes the things that we do in brewing are almost unconscious. Yeah, you know, like me adding 12 degrees to the to the strike water just because I know that's generally what I need in order to fall back into the right uh, category. Yeah, you know, I haven't measured it that in years. I haven't done, uh, done much with it. I just, oh, well, that works for me. Go forth. Go on. And that's how, that is so much of brewing is exactly that way. So, but a good example. Um, let's see. Next question from uh, Bill Kimbrell. Uh, my question is regarding English IPA. Any suggestions for water, malt bill, yeast, and techniques? We have North Down and Brambling Cross hops already. And Drew, we like your hat. Thank you. One of two Maltos Falcon Spezzes in existence. Um, so for an English IPA, the first question you have to ask yourself is which version of the English IPA are you talking about? So are you talking an 1800s English IPA, late 1800s English IPA, you know, World War One, World War Two, et cetera? Because uh, all of those are slightly different things as anything that lives for a long period of time called the same name as uh, if you're talking about, you know, sort of an English IPA in the vein of American IPA or modern American IPA, um, then what I would suggest is a sulfate-esque heavy water. If you go and you look at like what British homebrewers and British brewers do with their water, uh, they are way more aggressive about their mineral water. Than yeah. Um, like most American uh, brewers kind of start to shy off at about, you know, when you cross over 100 parts per million. I've seen a number of British homebrewing recipes where it's like, oh yeah, you know, we get uh, you know enough sulfate in there to give us 350 parts per million of of you know of, of sulfate. Oh, I I can feel it in my teeth. 
Um, so sulfate, uh, sulfate heavy, if you want to do Burtonized, you can. I mean, that would be historically accurate for a lot of stuff. But I, like I said, you got to remember that to the modern American palate, Burton, Burton salt, salted water seems harsh. Uh, malt, if you can find it, the Chris Chevalier malt. That that they build as you know it's a heritage malt. They build that as the original IPA malt. It is it is a malt bomb. Stunning, stunning. Yes. Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna go put this into the comments here just for people so they can see what that is. Um, yeast. Uh, well, I mean, I know London Three is probably like the most popular yeast strain in the world right now for their craft beers, uh, but. Me, I've always been a Tim's Valley guy. I like uh, I like Tim's Valley, uh, but I mean, it's a reliable fermenter and gives me enough character and doesn't get in the way. Uh, Northdown and Bremen Cross are, are great. And of course, if you want to be historically uh, historically on par, then you'd want to have some of uh, Denny's favorite hops in terms of Goldings and Fuggles. <laughs> uh, I like Goldings. Yeah, you hate Fuggles though. God bless you. Uh, but yeah, I would say for an English IPA, one answer that question about what period of time of English IPA you're talking about, and then go from there. But any of these English IPAs, I think, if you look at the original malt bills for a lot of this stuff, they're not very complicated malt bills. Yeah, um, and but they all start with a good uh, malt base. Marisotter is probably the, your most reasonably accessible choice. Uh, Chevalier malt is fantastic. And then once you do actually have a period of time of what you're thinking about in terms of your IPA, go read uh, Ron Pattinson's website because he breaks down a lot of historical IPA recipes. Mm-hmm. It shows you exactly what's in there. Don't be surprised to find that you actually have uh, more corn and more sugar involved than you would think. Uh, yep. And also uh, also a lot of those beers would also be using a coloring uh, agent because the British were not shy about coloring their beers. Still not really shy about coloring the beers with like a, a brewer's caramel. Uh, but in my mind, for an American uh, American spin on an English IPA, start with a really good Marisotte or Chevalier malt, uh, maybe a little bit of crystal. Don't go overboard with it because a lot of the malt bills were originally simple. You want to be historically accurate, a little bit of corn, uh, and then, yeah, go have fun with it. And also don't overhop it to hell. Okay. Uh, got anything to add to that, Dan? No, man. Uh that that covers it, especially given my uh, paucity of uh, brewing English IPA. <laughs> All right, let's see. Next question from Ron: uh, Does it take much of a does it make much of a difference if you do sixty minute bittering hops with flavor aroma hop additions that flame out, then dry hopping, versus multiple hop additions during the boil plus dry hopping? Yeah. Yes, it does make a difference, uh, but it depends on what you want. Uh, my my standard like IPA schedule. I, I make a lot of IPAs. That's pretty much what my wife wants. You know, if it's under seventy seventy IBUs, she's not interested. So I my standard schedule is a a, a sixty minute edition. Occasionally, a first word hops. I used to do that a lot, but I don't much anymore. Uh, I do a 60-minute edition, and then I generally will do, like, a couple editions at five minutes on down, um, and usually something at flame out also, and then uh, pretty good dry hopping. And uh, 
I, I use the short cold method for dry hopping where I crash the beer to 35 degrees Fahrenheit uh, and then dry hop for 48 hours uh, in there before I rack it off into a keg. Um, uh, you know, that's, that is pretty much my standard IPA hop schedule. I mean, mix it up a little bit just to, to make, make it a little bit different, but that's, that's the template I work from. Which, by the way, that's the dirty secret of the uh, recipe uh, world, at least in terms of homebrewing. All of this stuff that we do is all based off of templates. And actually, it's the thing that I, I suggest a lot of people do is you find yourself a good IPA recipe that you like, and then you build everything off of that sort of idea and tweak away from it. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the, the big question here, though, about does it make a difference? It does. And the thing is, if you want to make what we've started referring to as the modern West Coast IPA, uh, you'll find that a lot of brewers these days are not doing anything after that one bittering addition until they get to the whirlpool level. Um, and so inevitably in all these talks that I have with brewers and as we're tasting their IPAs, it's, you know, okay, well, we had a 60 minute addition and then we went into whirlpool and that's where we started laying in our hops. Uh, a lot of, a lot of brewers have switched to that. And that's part of the reason why you've seen such, I think, a, a palate shift in what IPA means on the West Coast, at least, uh, where a good number of the newer IPAs are no longer that sort of big all over the tongue sort of mouth experience or all over the mouth experience. Uh, and yeah. they're much more about aroma and uh, much more about that push. And I find I find that if I don't uh, use something towards the end of the boil, I feel like there's a hole in the flavor, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Well, that, I mean, that's exactly how I feel about uh, a lot of the recipes out there that do no boil, uh, no, no kettle additions at all. Um, I, I, I find that whenever you have a beer that has no, no kettle additions, no 60 minute even, or even no knockout, uh, you know, I find it misses something. There's a, like a firm oh, back of uh, that, that it doesn't have. So, um, Again, the question here is, yes, it does make a difference, but whether or not what you do is all going to depend upon what your goal is, um, you know, what the flavor yeah. is that you want. If you go and uh, Dawson, has the Denny Kong uh, column run yet in BYO? The, which one? The, yes, the yes it's in the uh, October issue. Let me just double check that I'm accurate. No, that's concept beers. It's in the November issue, so coming out in two weeks. All right. So when you get your issue in, in a couple of weeks, take a look at that recipe. That was a recipe that Danny and I brewed with uh, my good friend Kelsey down at North Park Beer Company, uh, who wins stupid amounts of medals for his IPAs. Uh, and that was very much an amalgamation of what our thought processes were around a lot of IPAs. Uh, and surprisingly to me, um, for the most part, we didn't have any disagreements about hops. No. The, one, the, the, one big, uh, the one big disagreement was about whether or not there should be any crystal malt in there. <laughs> and we didn't put any crystal malt in. We used Vienna instead. How about that? Yep. So, yeah, again, it's all going to depend upon what it is that you want. I think doing the, the big multi uh, multiple additions, you know, your 60, your 30, your 15, your 10, your 5, et cetera, that's going to make your beer feel very uh, – uh, much fuller in a way and also older 
in a lot of ways. No, 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 no. Don't go there. <laughs> no, no. I mean, older in terms of style, uh, stylistically. Don't mean older in terms of age. I just mean older stylistically. I, I, um, I know what you mean. I, I, okay, I'll, I'll give you that one. I, I don't agree, but uh, I won't argue with you. I don't know why you'd stop uh, stop now. We've been arguing for <laughs> we've been arguing for over a decade. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So th- that's my take. I, I have a follow up question talking about this. Um. So with my IPAs, I've basically gotten rid of adding pellet hops for the sixty minute and just do extract hop extract. And the mm-hmm. reason being the G thirty. I add a lot of end of boil and whirlpool hops and it clogs easily. So if I can get rid of that one, one and a half ounce at the beginning with extract, you need a little less hop screen. Do you guys do that? And would that have any impact if I use pellets or extract for my 60 minute, as long as I'm calculating that I'd be used the same in your mind? I don't think you'll have any impact. I was about to say what you need is the new uh, hop screen filter for the G30. I'd get to mine, but it's blocked. Um, but no, there, there are lots of people out there who are doing great work with extract. Um, I, I tend to be more focused about using extract when I'm trying to do like a really big, super hoppy beer. But, uh, I mean, again, the whole reason that extract came, uh, came into being in part was, you know, for the exact thing that you're talking about there, Dawson was to make the, make the kettle mechanics a lot easier for, for a brewery. Um, I, I just returned from uh, Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief, and uh, a lot of it this year was about the economics of hops. And one thing that they pointed out was that, you know, if, when you go from, say, pellets to cryo hops, you reduce the amount of hops you have to ship and the cost of shipping by 50%. When you go from cryo hops to extract, you reduce it another 50%. Um, and, uh, then, you know, they've had this new product trial 702 that even like is beyond what is out there for extract now. And that reduces it another 50%. But I think that extract is a real viable thing to use, especially in your situation. And I think that going forward, we're going to see it being used a lot more, uh, for, for economic as well as practical and aesthetic reasons. You think we'll get more hop varietal extracts than are available yeah. now in the near future? I know we will. Uh, I, you know, I uh, again, uh, I, I saw, I saw, I talked to people who are working on that right now, and I, right now, uh, some of the the new stuff that uh, that uh, YCH is working on this uh, trial seven hundred two product uh is coming like in Simcoe and Citra and stuff like that. So uh, I think that that's only going to get more as time goes along. And we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Get ready. This year's Learn to Homebrew Day is going to be a smash. Join the celebration on Saturday, November 4th by brewing a recommended smash beer. These recipes use a single malt and single hop and are perfect for experienced and beginning homebrewers. For the official Learn to Homebrew Day recipes, brewing tutorials, and a free brewing book, visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for event and book offer details. 
Weiss Fourth Quarter Legacy Curation features two legendary strains for autumn brewing, 1968 London ESB Ale and 1728 Scottish Ale. These yeast strains were isolated 30 years ago for our culture collection and continue to be brewmasters' top choices for traditional multi-European ales today. Both are regarded for their high flocculation and suitability for strong and seasonal specialty styles like double IPAs, smoked and barrel-aged beers, British bitters, barley wine, and more. Completing this curation are two limited-release lager favorites, 2000 Boudvar Lager and 2001 Pilsner Urkel H Strain. Available now through the end of December, Boudvar Lager delivers rich maltiness and subtle fruit notes while allowing hop character to come through in Czech lagers and German Helles styles. The Pilsner Urkel Strain produces mild floral aromas and a clean, dry palate and full mouthfeel for Czech lagers and Bohemian-style Pilsners. Catch up on our latest blog posts and learn more about this release at yeastlab.com. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch two-in-one distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Let's see. Next question from Bill March. Uh, are there any simple adjustments to get from published recipe to electric single vessel no sparge process? Uh, I can't think of anything you would really need to adjust other than water amounts. Right. So if you're doing no sparge, then you have to start with your total amount of water um, and you know the grain is going to absorb about a gallon of water for every eight pounds of grain, right? So, you know, if if you're making a seven-gallon, you know, if you want to make a five-gallon batch and you know that your grain is going to absorb X amount of water, add that amount of water plus a little bit more to account for losses along the way. And I think that that's, about as simple as that adjustment could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'll agree. I think realistically, you know, you're not going to 
have that many concerns just doing the nose barge. As long as you, I guess uh, uh, the one caveat, as long as the nose barge that we're talking about here is still actually the full sparge, just basically a Bruna batch total volume nose barge. Uh, if you're truly doing like what I, what I think was we were calling nose barge when we were first starting to brew, which is like no sparge orders will ever touch this thing. And you know, you must mash in X, Y, Z fashion. Then yeah, you'd have to adjust some of your, your grain levels, I think. But uh, if we're talking here, just a total volume mash with no sparge, I think you're fine. Yeah. Next question from Brett here. How much better could my beer be if I reduce my 7.8 pH water for brewing? I struck out on one attempt where I used brewing water and phosphoric to adjust. In that attempt, I brewed a blonde and have brewed many times before and uh, to have the mash be cement thick and a gelatinous texture that I could not thin or louder and had to dump it. I'm at a loss. I'm sure if I should try again. I hope you don't mean you're adjusting your water because you need to adjust the mash pH. Uh, you know, so I, you know, I said, uh, I can't, and you know, if you adjusted the pH correctly, I can't think of any reason that that would make your mash set up like that. Uh, if I, I, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, a little, Brett, are you out there by any chance, man? Let me see here. If, if it's got a, anything over here. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so please, uh, um, don't adjust your water pH if that's what you're doing. You need to uh, adjust the pH of the mash. And, Drew, can you think of any reason? I mean. Oh, Brett is here if you have a question for him. Oh, he is? Yep. Brett. Hey man, did you uh, did you adjust your water pH or did you adjust the mash pH? Yeah, did you try and get the pH of the water down uh, down lower, or were you trying to target the mash to be in that five two or five one to five four range? And part of the reason to, to say this is okay. You're saying your your water is at a seven point eight pH. Uh, just to give you an idea, when I look at my uh, okay, he adjusted his mash pH to five point four. That that should not have had any effect whatsoever on on your grain setting up like that. Uh, you got high bicarbonate. That's uh, okay. I, so, so to give you an idea, Edward, uh, when I when I grew here in Pasadena, uh, my standard uh, my, my my standard water pH is seven point nine. Uh, 7.9, and my bicarbonate's about 187, 190, right? So, and I brew very successfully using that. Um, so I, yeah, if your mash is hitting 5.4, I don't think, I don't think that's your problem. You agree, Danny? Yeah, yeah I, I would agree, uh, T- tell me, but was this a recipe you'd brewed before? Were you using the same ingredients that you'd used before, uh, including including the grain? Uh, you know, because there's there there is no reason that a five point four mash pH should have done that. Yeah, um, and then of course the the other suggestion that I would say is if you're if you're concerned about uh, that 
you know, about your 7.8 uh, being, uh, being an issue. Uh, go and brew the exact same recipe again, but this time start with distilled water or RO water. Yeah, and use that to, as a starting place. So, you know, like, you know, if you're, if you're really dealing with something that's from your water chemistry or not, my suspicion is that it's not the water chemistry here. No, I don't think so either. I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. So real base yeah. Bondale is always the same grain bill strike inspired driver. <clears throat> yeah. Your, your pH meter isn't meant to be used at that temperature. Uh, Brett, you know, Send us an email. Uh yeah. podcast at experimentalbrew.com. We'll try and we'll try and get this uh we'll try and get we'll, this sorted for you. Well we'll talk to Martin about it, but uh you know, again, I'm I'm real skeptical that uh that the water adjustment had anything to do with it. But on the other hand, I have no other ideas. So you know, take that, man. Yeah, although again, the other the other suggestion would be try and do this uh baseball on ale with uh RO water as your as your base. And then go from there and see if you get the same problem. But yeah, email us podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And that's for anybody out there. If uh, we don't get to your question, if you need to know more, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. See, ne- next question. Uh, seeing how much you guys brew, how do you balance the desire to brew with the natural limit of overconsumption um, uh-huh. of what you make? That That's a real problem, actually. You find a lot of friends, I assume. Yeah, I'll well, club. Yeah, you know, and I don't, I, where I live, I don't have anybody living near me. Uh, I don't go to homebrew club meetings very often. Um, you know, just recently I was really jonesing to brew and it's like, oh, I've got like two kegs of beer out there that I'm working on. Uh, do I really need to have a third right now? Except that I love brewing, <laughs> you know, so that, that that is an issue, and it's something that I struggle with daily, actually, man. And I, I don't have an easy answer for it. Yep. Uh, my suggestion would be uh, make session beers. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, you know, go, go between the extremes. Make make session beers so you ha- you have something that you can drink that isn't going to be over the top. And then you know, on the other side, go and make a go and make something big that needs time in order to go. Or if you really just you're like me, and it's not just about brewing, but it's about fermentation. Go make some hot sauce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I made my first hot sauce last year. Um, well, how do you? Anything special about your hot sauce? Any? Uh, uh, this was all. This is all fresh, uh, fresh roasted, uh, or not roasted? Sorry, uh, fresh batch chilies. A couple jalapenos, some onion. Uh, I think I put in four percent salinity. And then a little bit of a little bit of water, uh, and slurried it up and uh, hit it with some sauerkraut juice to do the lacto ferment. And actually, uh, this weekend, assuming I'm, I'm actually still alive and not you know succumb to this cold, uh, I'm going to bottle it up. So I would, and yeah. Uh, so Kevin just said that uh, since I retired, uh, that he's he's considering getting a smaller uh, brewing rig. Uh, when we both first started brewing. It was gospel that you had to brew five gallons and not brewing five gallons was dumb. You know, you were taking the same amount of time to, to, to make, you know, a lesser amount of beer. Why would you waste your time that way? Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with sitting there and making a two, a two to three gallon batch of beer. And actually, in a lot of ways, if, if what you're trying to do is explore recipes and explore ideas, doing that smaller batch of beer is actually a, a godsend. So. 
Uh, that's uh, that's what I do. Also, like I said, homebrew club, homebrew club, and shove beer at them. Go here, drink. Yeah. And also the, the other thing, and I know this is also sort of uh, a sacrosanct uh, topic amongst uh, homebrewers. It's okay to dump out beer. Yeah. Just do it. If if you're not drinking it, if you don't like it, don't punish yourself. Life's too short to drink bad beer. Let's get to this next question because I feel a rant coming on. Um, I, I think so too. If you're looking at the one I am, so with the popularity yeah. of all-in-one systems, are homebrewers getting lazy? <clears throat> Denny, I like brewing and don't care to shorten my brew day. Okay, fine. Denny. Who said that the quality of your hobby is determined by how hard you work at it? You know, what what a bogus idea that is. Uh, you know, I, I just, I mean, I like, I like brewing too. I brew to brew. I brew for the brew day, not the beer that comes out. The beer is a side effect of brewing, right? But I, I don't like to waste time. I don't like to do needless things. It drives me crazy. Um, you know, I, I, my brew day is about mm, three hours and 45 minutes to four hours these days. And that includes cleanup and everything else. And that's fine. I'm not rushing. I'm not hurrying. I'm enjoying things. Now, if you want to take longer, that's fine. But don't think that people who don't want to brew like you do are lazy. <laughs> you know, there, there is nothing that says, that a homebrewing hobby needs to be as difficult as you can make it. Yeah. The, the only, uh, the only hobby out there that rewards you for hard work is weightlifting. Uh, you know, everything else is subjective. Uh, and there's a comment uh, in the chat that, uh, that the fermentation side is where the quality comes alive. Now here's, here's what I will say. Is it possible that because we have these things like the grandfathers and all that, that, um, you know, people are taking less care on the hot side, you know, less care overall, because now this is just, yeah, I mean, that's entirely possible, but that's on the brewer, not on, on the fact they're using it all in one. You know, I could, perf I could be back in, uh, back in the days when I was working really freaking hard on it to make five gallons of beer on my apartment kitchen stove. Meanwhile, my landlord thought I was doing something illegal and bootlegging. But I would uh, I would sit there and you know gas stove you know doing anything working hard to make that happen. I could still be lazy on the back end and screw everything up. You know there was nothing magical about the fact that I had temperature control uh, going on in the mash. So to me, is it possible for homebrewers to be lazy? Yes, but it's always been possible for homebrewers to be lazy. All the ones are not symptomatic of that. Uh, I've known plenty of people who even the old guys. Like when, when I first joined the Falcons all those years ago, you know, there were still plenty of old guys who were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I just mashed with this, that, that, that. And like they had the laziest process in the universe and they were still brewing on their stoves. So nothing magical about an all in one. And what's really nice about the all in one is it gives me more puttering time. Because part of the reason <laughs> I like to brew is I like to putter around in my space. And if I'm not having to sit there and walk over and make sure the mash temperature is holding correctly and it's just doing its thing, I can putter. And I can putter very efficiently. <laughs> so, to, to get back to this, this lazy thing, uh, a lot of times when we do seminars and we're, and we're talking about uh, the simple home brewing concept and everything, 
you and I say that, uh, you know, we've tried to figure out which one of us is lazier, but we're too lazy to argue about it. I'm I'm just dedicated to the art of puttering. Yeah, and I'm I'm dedicated to the art of taking it easy and having a good time. Uh, I've spent many years doing brewing the hard way. Uh, I like brewing the easy way. Yeah. Now, by the way, the usual caveat applies here uh, that we always like to remind people of: if brewing in a particular fashion is what makes you happy, yes, that's your enjoyment. Uh, then by all means, go and do that. Uh, you know, we're, we're not trying to advocate a position of if you don't do it the way that we do it, that you're inherently wrong about. Right. And no, I start to go burn in hell for eternity. We, uh, yeah, we know beer. Yeah, we're. Because it, well, the problem is there's, there are some people out there that get that way. And we're not that way. We, we both ha- happen to brew in the particular ways that we do. I do things that Denny, that Denny, Looks at me and goes, "Why you do that?" Any of those things that, that do the same thing, but we both brew, and yeah, you brew you. Uh, but yeah, so it turns out, like I have, I have a friend of mine in the club. He makes absolutely fantastic uh, German lagers and German Hefeweizens and whatnot, and he absolutely is a stickler for the idea that, damn it, the only way to do that is to do a double decoction, this, that, and the other, and and all that. And he regularly does that. That's his jam. I couldn't give a damn about doing a decoction ever again in my entire life. That's right. My power to avoid doing a decoction, but he makes really good beer. He does it his way. I'm not going to argue with him. You know, he, he can go do his thing. Yep. Looks like we've got one last one to wrap up here with, huh, Dawson? Yeah, and I saved this one for last because it's not really a question, just to uh, give you guys some praise. So, uh, let's see, here we go. Uh, Ron says he got his copy of Simple Homebrewing arrived in the mail today, just in time to peruse before tonight's live Q&A. I've uh, been a homebrewer for 17 years and thought by now I knew a thing or two, but it was the subtitle, Great Beer, Less Work, More Fun Than Tice Made Order, and glad I did. This book is not for the beginner. It's for the experienced homebrewer who has begun to, or who has become so bogged down with information on how to make great beer uh, the fun and enjoyment of brewing was left behind with the troop. Uh While the copy I received wasn't signed, I wouldn't have objected to a couple of uh, beer glass rings on the cover. So, Ron, thank you, man. You get it. Yeah, you, you know that's actually been the hardest thing to sell about that book. Yeah, yeah, it was because everybody everybody saw the title and they decided that that meant that this was for beginners. And really, what it what it comes down to is it's the opposite. Yeah. Like, cause it is, I mean, I think I tell the story in the book. I'm fairly certain I do. It's been a while since we wrote it. Uh, but at one point in time, uh, again, that whole world that we grew up in where if you don't brew five gallons, you're not a real homebrew. And if you're a really real homebrew, you brew 10 gallons or more at a time. Um, I went and I built myself a 15 gallon brew rig and almost stopped brewing. You know, uh, the way I got back into brewing was to start going back to five gallon batches and kind of simplifying my process and, the, and all that sort of fun stuff. And that's in part the, the, my motivation for writing that, that book. Uh, and it really is. It's like, you know, there's so much stuff out there uh, and that sometimes we just kind of forget to have fun. That, that book is kind of the culmination of what I've learned from 
25 years and 604 batches of homebrew. Um, you know, I, I wrote that book because I had come from the spot the, that uh, Ron was in, right? Like I said, I, I had just like science shit out of things and come through the other side. So, you know, it, it, what it is is a way of getting you to think about what you do when you brew and if you're enjoying it. Because, I mean, it's just like the question we had a few minutes ago, you know, about, you know, are, are things getting too, are, are we getting too lazy? Are we oversimplifying things? Man, if you enjoy doing it some other way, that's fine. But if you're not enjoying what you're doing, this book will help you think through your process and hopefully come up with a way that you can keep brewing and get a lot more fun out of it. Great beer, less work, more fun. That is the whole key right there. Love it. Um, hey, with that, we've uh, completed our hour and gone a little bit over. Uh, first off, I want to thank both of you for you know for doing this every year. I, I love hearing you guys talk for an hour. I could sit here and listen for a few. Um, also, you know, really appreciate the work on the tech, techniques columns every issue. Um, and then thanks for everyone else who showed up and asked great questions. Uh, you know, didn't have any questions, this conversation would have gone a, a whole lot differently. So thank you, everyone, and um, we'll see you all next month. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks a bunch. Peace, y'all. Listen to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter or X, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. You can find me hanging around the AHA discussion forum and Facebook and a number of other places. So look around. I'm there someplace. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And as always, please send in your questions. We'll put together a Q&A show for you. And don't forget that you can always leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to brew experimentally. And as Drew says, or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 